Mori ora ki te whare, inga mana, inga reo, inga waka, inga maunga, inga awa, inga mate, inga iwi hurinoe i te whenua nui. No mai hari mai ki te taurima o Aotearoa. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. And a big tēnā koe to you, Bart. Lovely to have you here. Um, thank you all for coming to hear Bart discuss his book, The Cutout Girl, with me today. Um, my name is Mary Young Moyer, and it's a real pleasure to be chairing this session with you. I've loved having this close reading experience of your book. It's a privilege to give the formal introduction to Bart Venice, who is a professor of English literature at the University of Oxford and a fellow of St. Catherine's College. Bart is the author of Spencer's Forms of History, Shakespeare and Company, and Shakespeare's Comedies, as well as The Cutout Girl, published in 2018, the year which it was also the winner of the Costa Book of the Year. He was born in the Netherlands and now lives in England and has come all this way to discuss his book, The Cutout Girl, with us today. Um, but I'd like to start by asking you to read a passage from The Cutout Girl, please, um, where Lean is given to the woman who secreted her from The Hague through to Dordrecht, um, to her first foster family, um, who are your grandparents. So yes, this is where a, a lady comes to the door of Lean's parents' house, who she's never met before, to collect her and take her somewhere else. And of course, they've told her she's just going on a little holiday. They haven't told her that this is forever. The lady is quite young, but not at all like a mother. It is a real adventure to be going with her, the kind of adventure that gives you a little feeling of sickness in your mouth. On the outside, she is excited, but on the inside, she feels calm. They are unstitching the stars from her dresses, the two women's fingers moving very fast. Lin can keep her own name and her surname, de Jong, but she must not say anything about mama or papa or family. She's not to be Jewish now, just a normal girl from Rotterdam whose parents have been killed in the bombing. If anyone asks, she must say that the lady is Mrs. Hirama and that she is taking her to her aunt who lives in Dordrecht, which is a different town. It is important to stay very close to the lady, hug tight into her body, so that nobody who knows her can see that Lean is not wearing her star. Mama says exactly the same things as the lady and gets her to repeat them, even though Lean feels she knows them already. Then, a kiss with a hug that hurts a little, and she is outside in the Pleteré Strat, walking fast in step with the lady, trying hard to keep herself pressed into her coat. The bag of her things, including her pussy album and Papa's puzzle, is over Mrs. Hirama's shoulder and bangs its edge against her with every stride. It is not far from Lean's house to the station, so their walk through the streets and then through the park, where Jews are forbidden, to the Hollandspoor railway is over almost as soon as it starts. The station front looks like a palace, but there is no time to look at it because their train is about to depart. Lean thinks for a moment about her bedroom, close enough for her to run back. Mrs. Hirama talks to her about funny place names. There are lots in Holland, she says. For example, the Double Sausage Street in Amsterdam, the Moustache in Groningen, or Duck Sick Road in Zeeland. There is also a road called Behind the Wild Pig. Lean thinks these names are funny. She likes Mrs. Hirama and giggles as they watch the houses of The Hague pass faster and faster through the window of the train compartment, 
the kachunk kachunk of the wheels on the railway growing louder and closer together. The smoke from the locomotive is dirty, but it smells clean. Does Lean know any funny place names? After a lot of thinking, she remembers Cowthief Street, which Mrs. Hiramar had not known about. Cowthief Street, that's a good one, Mrs. Hiramar says. Lean is about to say, it's not far from our house, when she stops herself just in time. Unlike The Hague, Dordrecht has only one railway station. It is also like a palace, only a bit smaller, without the princess towers of the station they left behind. They walk through another park, bigger than theirs at home, and sleepy in the afternoon sunlight, then through streets with houses nothing at all like the three-story apartment blocks of The Hague. Her legs are tired now, and it takes a bit longer each time to get to a new corner. But at each one, Mrs. Hiramar tells her the street name, and then a funny one from somewhere else in Holland, so Lean presses on. They reach the Mauritzweg, at which Mrs. Hiramar says, Trousers Street, then the Crispainseweg, Butter Mountain Street, and finally the Builder Dijkstraat, Rabbit Pipe Street, and they have arrived. All the houses that Lena's passed seemed little compared to the ones in The Hague, but these ones in the Builder Dijkstraat are the littlest of all. In fact, the street doesn't really look like it has houses. It just has two long, low, red brick walls with doors and windows set in it, stretching as far as Lean can see. In the road, a group of boys is running and shouting. Mrs. Hiramar, ignoring the commotion, walks straight to the door of number 10 and knocks hard on the little round window pane. In her coat pocket, unbeknownst to Lean, there is a letter. It is written in the same steady hand that her mother used on the second page of the little girl's album. The letter, which still survives in Lean's apartment in Amsterdam, is dated August 1942. It reads as follows. Most honored sir and madam, although you are unknown to me, I imagine you for myself as a man and a woman who will, as a father and mother, care for my only child. She has been taken from me by circumstance. May you, with the best will and wisdom, look after her. Imagine for yourself the parting between us. When shall we ever see her again? On the 7th of September, she will be nine. I hope it will be a joyful day for her. I want to say to you that it is my wish that she will think only of you as her mother and father, and that, in the moments of sadness that will come to her, you will comfort her as such. If God wills it, we will all, after the war, shake one another by the hand in joyous reunion, directed to you as the father and mother of Linke. Thank you, Bev. Um, we agreed that that was a good uh, place to start. For those of you who haven't yet read the book, um, that letter is a, just an absolute sucker punch, isn't it? Um, to read every time and to think about as a parent writing that letter, but then also um, as a child to have grown up with that letter in your possession and knowing what your parents did for you um, at what huge cost for themselves. Um, the first line of the book is Lean saying to you when you meet as adults, without families you don't get stories. 
um, which rings throughout the book and seems like a good place to start. I was wondering if you could give us a brief précis of the book, please, Bart, and tell us what this line, without families, you don't get stories, has come to mean to you. Yeah, I mean, it's a line that I think I only actually really fully understood at the end of the month I spent researching Lean's story, when I think you, you come to see that what it means is that if you haven't shared things with other people, they haven't really happened. If there haven't been family stories, if there aren't things that you can cry or laugh about collectively, then they really fail to make an impression. And so that deep connection between needing to share and having a story uh, is something that we kind of built up together. So I'd always known that my grandparents, who are Dutch, as, as am I, um, had sheltered Jewish children during the war. And I was also aware that one of those children, called Lean, had continued to live with them after the war ended, that she'd grown up with my father as a sister. She was there on my parents' wedding photographs, for example. Um, so there was that, that certainty about that uh, fact, but at the same time, Lean was never talked about. I'd never met her, and if she was brought up, it was a source of great uncomfortableness. There'd been a row with her in the early 1980s. Um, so if you asked my grandmother about the war, she would just say, we weren't brave. Uh, if somebody was left at your door, what else would you do? Um, but it wasn't anything that had stories. There wasn't that sense of uh, a family being defined by those stories. And it wasn't until uh, 2014, November 2014, that I went that step further and decided to find out about it. And I think in retrospect, it was a combination of the death of my eldest uncle, Case, uh, and a, a beginning of a rise in extremism, uh, a sense that the lessons of World War II, which had seemed to me pretty firmly learnt by the world, were now in danger of being forgotten. I think those two things worked together to make me ask my mother, this girl, you know, didn't she live with my grandparents, and is she still alive? And actually, my mother had kept in touch with Lean, um, but she said, no, she won't want to meet you. It's not a happy story. It's best left alone. And anyway, it's already been recorded for the Shoah Foundation archive. But I suppose I'm a nosy person, and <laughs> I kept badgering her about it. And in the end, she gave me Lean's email address. And that meant I was able to set up a, a short meeting with her. And she emailed back and said, well, you can come and have a cup of coffee, but it probably won't go any further than that. So what happened was that, you know, on the 21st of December 2014, I pressed a buzzer in an apartment block in Amsterdam, went up to the third floor, stepped out of the lift, and this woman just slowly circled me when I stepped out. This 82-year-old woman just... Uh, quietly walked around me, and then after about two minutes, she said, you look more like your mother. Uh, and then she took me into her apartment, which was exactly like the sort of apartment I would have, you know, modern art on the walls and uh, sort of cultural supplements on glass coffee tables. It was a very beautiful space, and it immediately felt like kind of a family place to me. Um, and, you know, she then proceeded to kind of interview me quite sternly for about... <laughs> Uh, half an hour and sort of said, you know, what are your politics? What, tell me about your relationship with your dad. How do you do your academic research? And then at the end of that, she said, yes, I've got confidence in this. You know, sit down at the table. Have you brought a pen? 
and paper, which I hadn't. Uh, so I was pretty unprepared, um, but she was pretty prepared to start telling me her story, which is what, what the book came out of. Um, the title, The Cutout Girl, uh, and there are multiple references to this motif of things being cut out or people being cut out throughout the book, really traces uh, Lean's history of being displaced. So she's sent away by her parents in order to save her when she's eight in 1942, hidden and moved around multiple times without any agency, trying to then fit in and coexist with different families and then later struggling really to fit herself into an orthodox Jewish way of life um, and a family way of life. And then later on she's cut out of her foster family's lives until you begin your research. So I wondered if you could tell us how this motif of cut out and the cut out girl came to you, please. Yeah, so... I had been calling them stencils, but I realized they were cutouts. Uh, so almost all girls in the Netherlands used to keep these little books called pussy albums. Uh, and they're very sort of sweet, girlish things. They usually have flowery covers, as Lean's did. And the idea is that you ask friends, family, uh, to write little poems on one side of the page and to put cutouts on the facing page. And you used to be able to get these kind of transfer sheets where you could get basically lots of pictures of girls in crinolines, boys in top hats, flower arrangements, angels, uh, these, these things. Uh, so when we started talking, Lean and I, uh, that first day when I met her, I kind of hit upon this way of just asking her everything about her childhood, everything that she could remember. So I'd just say, what was your bedroom like? What clothes did you wear? What food did you eat? And actually it came as a kind of surprised to her that she had so many objects. She didn't remember that she even had that letter from her mother. Um, and she certainly didn't know for sure that she had a pussy album. But as we started talking about her school days, she sort of went, oh, actually, I used to have this, this pussy album. Uh, and maybe I've still got it somewhere. So we sort of instituted a search of her apartment. <laughs> I stood up on chairs. And, and we eventually found it on the top shelf, wedged behind the books in her library. And you know, opened the book up, and on the first page, there was a poem from her father, written in September uh, 1940, in which he wrote this little poem saying, this is a book where friends can write, we, uh, who wish for you a future bright, with always smiles throughout the years, and lots of fun and never tears. And, you know, and you read something like that, and of course, you, there's this horrible irony to that statement. But opposite it, there were these, these two little girls, uh, cut-out girls, one smiling very openly and the other looking down rather nervously. And I was actually in conversation with my wife. We were trying to come up with a title for the book. And she said, oh, you know, those are not stencils, they're cutouts." And then I kind of thought, actually, that's sort of what happened to Lean. She was like one of those little girls who was, you know, taken from one world, this, you know, slightly precious family that she was part of as an only child. Then overnight or just you know, over an afternoon, dropped into a completely different family. My grandparents were members of you know, a socialist uh, political party and a trade union movement. It was a bigger family, much more kind of rough and ready working class family. And she just had to adapt there. And as you say, then following a police raid on that house after about nine months, she just had to be sent to another household where, again, she had to adapt. And this actually happened nine times over the course of the war, that she was forced to move 
either because the place became unsafe or um, because, well, you know, all sorts of things happened. There was actually a, you know, a, an allied landing at one point that she was in the middle of. So, so yes, that motif of her being cut out just seemed very appropriate for, for her experience because it's also a psychological story. Um, Lean said there was a kind of mathematical precision with which she cried half as much again every time she moved house. Uh, so, you know, she remembers her parents very vividly, and when she realized that move was permanent, she did burst out into tears and, and was crying for days on end. Then when she moved from the Vanessas, there was a sadness. But as the war went on, she became more and more anesthetized to these experiences and kind of also stopped seeing the world around her which connects to that idea of without families, you don't get stories. By the middle of the war, she doesn't really remember anything about where she was. She doesn't remember names because she wasn't engaging with the world. And I think in that early period of the book, you do such a beautiful job of capturing her voice as a child without, and it feels very natural. Um, did that ephemera and the photos and, and the diary, did that help you find her voice? How did you go about finding her voice? Yeah, that was, that was surprisingly easy, actually, mainly because I, after that, I, you know, I'd gone for half an hour to Lean's house, and I was still there 10 hours later. This, this story just absolutely absorbed me, and, and actually also absorbed her. She'd never spoken about it in that way. Uh, so getting these very precise questions awakened a huge amount of detail from her that she hadn't really recalled for you know, many, many decades. Um, so I had this very curious experience, really, of, of having met this old lady, but then really only experienced her as a little girl. Uh, so her whole world, certainly that first day, we, we really didn't get any further than that departure that uh, is recorded, and there was a letter there. So I saw the things that mattered to her as a little girl, which were actually, actually not really things to do with the war which was very revealing. You know, her anxieties as a little girl were not about the war. They were mainly about her parents, uh, who had got divorced when she was two and had got back together when she was about four and a half. And that was this sort of youth trauma for her. And she had food anxieties around that and was a kind of little tyrant at home, I think, to her parents with, with her, you know, supposed stomach aches and things. So, you know, that was for me, relatively easy to get that sense of, yes, I understand who that, who that little girl was uh, and, and how she saw the world. So I wanted to write it not in a kind of baby style, but in a way of writing that, I suppose, is a kind of you know, occluded third-person narration where, where you see the limitedness of a child's point of view. So there's kind of little things like you know, hearing that the smoke is dirty, but thinking it smells clean is the sort of thing that an eight-year-old would kind of be registering. Um, so, yeah, those, those bits were, were the bits I actually wrote first after meeting Lean. Um, and then the more complicated part was really to put in my own story, too, which is a more unconventional thing, I suppose, to have done. I thought the way that you managed to weave together so many different stories, so there's Lean's childhood, her adulthood and her psychological development, which is so, so fascinating and moving. Obviously, your own story, your relationships with your own family, your extended family, but then also a real richness um, of Dutch social history, which I hadn't read before in, in um, the Holocaust literature I've read. How did you go about 
um, weaving that all together? How did that narrative structure come together for you? It sort of came from my experience. So the book was sort of forced upon me. I didn't start out with any plan for it. But after that first incredibly intense day with Lean, you know, I drove back and all I could see were these black and white photographs, really, of you know, her at school, her with her parents and so on, and that absolute horror of thinking this whole family was just wiped out. I mean, nobody of Lean's immediate family survived. Um, you know, apart from one aunt who was experimented on by Joseph Mengler and came back, you know, a wreck of a woman, really. So, so that was intensely emotional. And then I just thought, I've got to find a way of recording this and also investigating it. So I, I came back for the whole of January 2015 and hit upon this idea of going to the places where Lean had been in hiding, photographing them, and talking to the people there and, you know, going into local archives and seeing what I could reconstruct and then coming back with that information and interviewing Lean Moore. And that opened up this new layer, really, because I felt like I was kind of in a novel almost, you know, this really strange sense in which I was seeing a country that I'd only been kind of half familiar with because I speak the language, but I'd actually grown up pretty much outside the Netherlands. Um, and it feels so modern and uniform, the Netherlands, and yet there is this stuff hidden beneath the clean and tidy surface. So that experience that I had of suddenly seeing my own country in a different way was something I felt that had to be in the book as well. You know, and sometimes these things were just absolutely breathtaking. I mean, these strange things happened where at one point I went to a house that Lean was hiding in that turned out to be five minutes from my mother's home in this little village of Benicom, where, where she grew up. So she'd started the war with my father's family, ended up in my mother's home village. And, you know, the bizarreness of these events. So I knocked on that door, as you know, and I said to the lady, you know, I'm, I'm investigating the life of a Jewish girl in hiding. Uh, who, who lived here during the war. And the woman said, oh, do you mean at the time of Mrs. Van La? And I said, you know, yes, do you have a personal connection? And the woman said, well, no, but we found a diary belonging to her when we expanded the cellar. We've got it somewhere. And it was sort of like, wow, this is absolutely breathtaking. Uh, and then this woman said, oh, you ought to go and speak to my neighbor. Uh, you know, and I said, well, why should I speak to the neighbor? And she said, well, he knows a lot about the war. And I thought, well, you know, I think I know quite a lot about the war by now. <laughs> <laughs> and also, this neighbor had a very, very scary set of dogs that were <laughs> barking against this steel fence. So the last mm. thing I wanted was to go and see this neighbor. But yeah. I suppose I was more frightened of the lady than the, the dogs. <laughs> so, so she sort of stood in her doorway and said, you will go and speak to the neighbor. <laughs> so I knocked on this door, and this man came striding out of his garden surrounded by this vicious pack of Alsatians. It's um, good to have a bit of drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this was real. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. genuinely quaking. <laughs> um, but, uh, and I said, well, I'm very sorry to bother you, but I'm researching the life of this Jewish girl in hiding. Uh, and he said, Linke, she's the reason that I was born. I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> and he said, well, I'll tie up the dogs, which was extremely reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it turned out that actually he had photographs of Lean, and Lean had hidden in that house as well, and that his sister, who was still alive, remembers sharing a bedroom with Lean and told me all these stories of what they used to do uh, at night together. 
but Lean could remember not a single thing of that household. Uh, so then it became clear to me, look, if this is gonna be a book about what memory is like, then I have to be in it too, because I can't just write this seamless history that gives this indication of, oh, you just keep experiencing stuff. You know, and I make that explicit in the book. You know, sometimes we describe things, and it feels vivid, but then actually, you know, Lean doesn't remember it. The thing I found so striking, though, when you um, write about telling Lean of this discovery of, of the neighbours who can remember her um, and, and the daughter who remembers, you know, spending time with her during the war, that what Lean takes from that um, report, almost, that you give her is um, a sense of reassurance that the neighbours had treated her badly, really, had taken advantage of her, um, and that she felt reassured that her memory was correct, that she yeah. hadn't been being difficult or making things hard, that it, it actually was hard. And um, I wonder, I mean, I really respect that through the book you're very um, careful to explain that Lean has done the work and the healing herself, you know, um, She'd spent a number of decades really coming to terms with this very difficult history, um, and you say that she's connected and whole. Um, but I wonder, you know, that I was so moved by her feeling like, oh, yeah, things really were that bad. I mean, they were atrocious. At, at a later point, she's sexually abused. You know, she just goes through the worst things you can imagine for, as a child. And I wonder what... Um, impact you writing the book had on Lean and how it might have affected her own perceptions of her history? Yeah, that was a really striking thing because I came back from that village of Benicom with, you know, what to me were these astonishing facts, which was that this village that my mother had grown up in, that my mother's family continued to live in, that actually 150 Jews had survived in, in that village, hidden under people's houses, including that house of the man uh, with the scary dogs, there was uh, a room hidden below his sitting room where an entire Jewish family had survived the war. And they'd had this little girl as well who was, who was out in the open. So I came back with this kind of story of this is astonishing. There was this entire network which my family knew nothing about even now, even in uh, you know, 2015. My, my family was saying, we can't believe that's true. We've never heard about that, which is this strange way in which the country itself has had this experience of amnesia that partly parallels uh, Lean's individual one. And yeah, the, what she found valuable was that the neighbours said, oh yes, the Van Lars were you know, real bullies with Lean and, and treated her like a servant. Um, so yes, as you say, Lean started out very much with this position of, it's history for me, I've come to terms with it now. So you can ask me anything you want, which made it incredibly easy interviewing her. I think if it had been the first time that she looked, it's true that it was the first time that she really looked at those things in terms of material reconstruction, but she'd gone through the emotions. Uh, so she never broke down remembering things with me. Um, and she was, you know, relatively neutral about the thing, um, sort of saying, you know, I'm happy to share it, but it's not going to have an effect on me. And I sent her all the chapters as I wrote them in English, and she would check them and sometimes give little micro-corrections. Um, it was only when she read the Dutch translation that it actually really hit her. Um, and she said she had to go and lie down for a few days um, because then, I suppose, she was able to piece together the English to check the facts, but it wasn't an immersive experience. Whereas when she read the Dutch, she was suddenly... She said it was a kind of very dizzy-making 
thing. And there's, there's a very interesting sort of second phase to things for Lean now where, where the book has given her a kind of prominence that, you know, actually she's just wonderfully enthusiastic about that uh, and, and the, the way that it's, you know, given validation to her parents' lives and things. So, you know, I think we, t we talked earlier about the kind of gallows humor that she'll sometimes have. So, you know, the German edition has done very well. And uh, this meant that a German TV crew came to film in Lean's apartment. She said, the Germans are coming. <laughs> They're 70 years too late. <laughs> so, I mean, she sounds like just such a character. Um, I've loved watching the video of her, actually. Yeah. There's a, there's a beautiful bit where you both um, receive the Costa Book of the Year Award. Yeah. And she says something like, you know, she's got her own children. She says, I've, I've got my own family, but I, I've got a family from my past or something through this process yeah. of you writing this book together. Um, and I, I really appreciated how you reflected on your own process throughout the book. And at a certain point, you say, getting to know Lean has changed me. It's made me more reflective and less absolute. For the first time, I've seen someone else from the inside, from the earlier stages of their life. I've also seen myself in another person, my grandmother, not, of course, in her courage, but in some of her mistakes. And I wonder how you, looking back at this process of writing and getting to know Lean and now touring with the book together, um, how yours and Lean's stories have intercepted each other along the way. Yeah, we were just great friends, which and, and continue to be great friends, which is you know very lovely. I mean, it, it was in the researching and writing an incredibly emotional thing to do. I mean, it, it you know utterly haunted me for for years. Um, and those scenes would just be completely vivid to me, and I, you know, it was very difficult to think of anything else. Um, and it definitely did change me. I think one of the things that was very transformative for me is that I'd essentially just been an incredibly privileged person who grew up in a very stable family with a natural assumption, I suppose, that I would be loved and, you know, I was academically able. So, so life seemed pretty easy for me, uh, which made it quite difficult for me to empathize with people for whom life wasn't that easy. I, you know, I think I was kind to them and reasonable to them, but yeah. uh, also just sort of not really empathetic, and in particular, um, my foster daughter, who I think struggled to... Um, fit into the family when my wife and I had other children uh, and you know I thought we were treating you the same and you know we love you you know why does it have to be so difficult um, you know of course the parallels are not immediate but it suddenly made me see seeing how lean was with the Van Ness family after the war made me see you know maybe maybe somebody like that needs extra reassurance mm. uh, which my grandmother was not really able to give. I think my grandmother had no vocabulary or real understanding for trauma. Mm. Uh, and, you know, she'd been this strident, you know, incredibly brave person, but she was also basically impatient of fuss and in, in, impatient of what she looked upon as a kind of self-indulgence. So that's part of the story of, of surviving survival that the book is also about. So you know, it doesn't end in 1945, which, which is quite often an endpoint of, you know, that's it. You've you know, survived the concentration camp or you've survived in hiding. Actually, for Lean, you know, still being there in April 1945 when Holland was liberated meant pretty much nothing to her. 
she said, you know, cause all, the, all the time you kind of think, oh, you must have felt afraid during the war. She said, I was never afraid. I never cared enough to be afraid. Um, and, uh, you know, you must have been relieved at the end of the war. And she said, not really. No, I, you know, people were celebrating. I was used to joining in with whatever was going on, so I celebrated, but it, but it didn't really mean anything to me. Um, so I think one of the incredibly enriching things the book has given me is that it, it is a way into discussing things other than the Holocaust. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's about how families operate, that first sentence about families and stories. Um, and it's, you know, if you open yourself up to other people, which I think I hadn't done that much before, mm. by opening myself up in this book, I actually find, you know, colleagues say, well, actually, I was adopted, or we have a brother who we don't talk to anymore. Mm. Um, so that's been an incredible privilege that there's that reciprocity, really, that the book brings about, as well as having huge numbers of people for whom the book is important from, you know, a Jewish experience, uh, for example, that people say, well, you know, yes, we're, we're incredibly pleased that these stories are getting written up now. Well, I was really um, quite um, astounded to read such a specific Dutch story, and, but within that context, um, to learn, I think it's 4,000 children who were hidden during the war. Um, and that this was a very uniquely Dutch phenomenon. Uh, and then the, the hidden, the conference for the hidden war child. Yeah. Um, I've got the quote somewhere. Uh, oh, yes, here it is. Um, where the mayor of Amsterdam, who himself was hidden during the war, in his opening statement for the conference says, to whom should we have spoken? Who was really able to listen to our story? The story of our hiding has defined our whole existence, but we, at least most of us, have tried desperately all our lives to drive that story away. And at another point, you write how Lean, um, you know, experiences survivor guilt, that sense that she should have died with all the others in Auschwitz. Um, and what a brave and courageous act this is really on her behalf to turn and to face that past. Um, what do you think it has meant to her that the book, I mean, you said to me that you, you receive emails and letters about what the book has meant to people and that you share some of them with her. What do you think that has meant to her in the sort of span of her life? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I mean, as, as I say, on the whole, she rather underplays the impact of the book right. on her. Right. Uh, I think probably still a slight residual impact of her traumatic life is that she's very careful about really experiencing extreme emotions. Uh, so she sort of says she has her things. She, she likes to do meditation. Um, she likes to kind of have certain bits of the day where she's on her own. Uh, so it's not as though she's just kind of straightforwardly fixed. You know, when you meet her, she's you know fantastically uh, engaged person and she, she is really enjoying the impact of the book. And she has that mindset, basically, and again, this is something that's in the book, but in uh, 2003, at the end of a process of therapy that included this amazing conference for the Hidden War Child, which was uh, an event held in Amsterdam on the 50th anniversary of Anne Frank's going into hiding in July uh, 1992, where the 600 surviving child hideaways, child hideaways who... who uh, gone through the war, separated from their parents and weren't reunited with them at the end. They were all invited to this hotel in Amsterdam for a week uh, where they posted their stories on uh, storyboards, showed photographs, they produced a little internal newspaper. 
And that was the beginning. It was incredibly meaningful to Lean um, and meeting other people who'd had similar experiences. Uh, that, then she decided to kind of go into therapy. And at the end of that process, she went to Auschwitz and read out the names of her family who died in Auschwitz there. And then that was, she sort of said, that was closure. And, I, and she's very determined for that to be closure. Um, which then means that she's actually able to just celebrate this book as, you know, she says, oh, it's an enrichment of the last stage of my life. So, you know, the Dutch launch of the book, which you, you might have seen on, on, on the YouTube clip, uh, we were on a Dutch television program on the Thursday night, uh, and it was actually Lean's 85th birthday that started at midnight, and this program runs to midnight. And at midnight, they brought out champagne. Uh, and she was there amongst various kind of famous panelists toasting her 85th birthday on national television. And, you know, she was just kind of great, just saying, oh, this, you know, <laughs> who would have thought, you know, and here I am drinking yeah. champagne on my 85th birthday on national television. Um, so that was, was one thing she did. But the other thing is also that she's quite determined for this voice that she's been given to be useful. So in the middle of that Dutch program, she brought up the fact that in the news at that moment in the Netherlands, there was this very shocking case uh, of uh, two children who were at that point aged 11 and 9 who had come to the Netherlands as illegal immigrants from Armenia before they learnt any language. Uh, and their mother had ended up having uh, a mental breakdown, had ended up in an asylum, so they'd uh, been fostered to... Dutch families, these two children, uh, and just gone to Dutch school, so spoke only Dutch. And the Dutch immigration service had decided to um, expel these two children and put them into an Armenian orphanage. Um, and they were due to be sent back on the Saturday. Uh, and this program was on Thursday. And Lean said, well, you know, now I'm on national television. I'd just like to say those two children, Danny and Hovik, if you send them back, their story will be the same as my story. And that had an enormous impact. And the decision, uh, not just because of Lean, but certainly she was a factor, uh, the decision was reversed on the Friday. Uh, so, you know, she, she wants to be part of a conversation that is about saying, look, you know, we cannot just assume all of this is the comfortable past. And there are some very uncomfortable things about the Dutch conduct during the war. Uh, you know, the Dutch have somewhat propagated a national myth that kind of everybody was in the resistance and everybody hated the Germans. Uh, and that doesn't really match up very well with the fact that the death rate amongst Dutch Jews was pretty much double that of anywhere else in Western Europe. 75% to 80% of Dutch Jews died in the Holocaust. Uh, you know, and that's, that's very shocking. And it was the Dutch police force that carried this out, not the German police force. It was the Dutch civil service that administered it. Uh, it was the Dutch railways that ran the trains. Uh, so, you know, the country needs to acknowledge that and not be too smug about, you know, this liberal bicycling monarchy that it's become. Well, I do love the bicycling. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I think... Um, in terms of that acknowledgement of complex pasts, you do a very brave thing in acknowledging complexity in your own um, extended family's history 
um, as well as identifying some issues um, in your own, you know, with your own children in very different ways. Um, and I won't go into what the issues are with the extended family, because I would really recommend that you all read the book if you haven't already. Um, but I wondered what the impact has been for you and your extended family on you writing the book and two years later, um, you know, given its popularity. And, and if you had concerns around making public what had previously only been contentious in private. Yeah, but I was, I was always committed to telling the truth, really. Uh, and when my mother said, you shouldn't investigate this story, I didn't know what the story would be, but I realized it wouldn't be a straightforward story of heroism. Um, and that was difficult because my parents didn't want me to do the book. Um, and, you know, of course, I hugely respect them. And actually, they helped me with it a huge amount. My, my mother did give me the email address. My father helped me kind of reconstruct elements of their home life and so on. But, but they had a kind of view that, you know, my grandparents had been fantastically brave, and so why should they now be kind of put under this lens of critical scrutiny? Uh, so that, that, you know, it was difficult within the family. I do have two aunts who won't read the book and won't uh, talk about it. Uh, so, you know, that, that was difficult. But I was always really confident that scene in the round, everybody would come out of the book uh, in a way that was, you know, understandable. You know, people are human. And, you know, it is really difficult to take somebody else into your house um, and... You know, their ways are not going to be the same as yours. They're going to irritate you at times. It's, you know, initially there's sort of idea of you bring this sweet little girl in, but, you know, of course she's going to be difficult. She's going to row with your own children. She's whatever. Um, so actually the impact of the book in the family, apart from one or two people who are, you know, I respect the fact they don't want to read it, um, but certainly for the next generation it's been incredibly uniting. So... The children of Case, uh, the, uh, really the, the boy of the same age as Lean, who became great friends with her uh, when she first came to the Van Esses, you know, the children absolutely loved the book and told me, you know, they'd kind of cried over it and suddenly it made them understand their father differently. Lean's children have been very similar in saying that it's made them understand their mother more. And when we had the Dutch launch, Lean's children came, and so did Case's children, and my mother and father. So, you know, it really did bring people together. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's not all fixed, but uh, I think it's actually only brought healing. I want to go off on a slightly different tangent, if I may. We've touched on the, the book and the research uh, that you did for the book, bringing together, obviously, Lean's personal recollections. You did a lot of historical and archival research and using ephemera. Um, to bring Lean's story together with such detail and clarity, and it points what I can only describe as gripping action sequence. And you acknowledge, as you said previously, that Lean's wartime memories uh, are not as clear as you have made them. Um, and I wonder if there were ethical considerations that you had to navigate in re essentially recreating and reconstruction, reconstructing, but also detailing Lean's story, how you kind of grappled with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there was a point where Lean was hidden in a farm uh, across the Maas River from Rotterdam. Um, and there she was hidden in a different way to how she'd been hidden with my grandparents. When she was with my grandparents, she could actually 
just assume this new identity and go to school and so on. And that worked for a while until uh, the police raid on the house. Here she was hidden, you know, in a back room without natural light with uh, a teenager. Uh, and there too, there was a police raid that they narrowly escaped so that farm was surrounded by men with dogs. And then Lean couldn't walk anymore because she had spent all this time in the back room really basically eating nothing but potatoes for um, you know, nine months. Uh, so she was kind of covered in sores and things like that. So anyway, this boy carried her uh, through the kind of cordon uh, over a dike, then um, eventually through a sort of network of uh, passages to a new hideout location. Lean's memory was very patchy about that. She said that we were told there was a police raid. Um, he carried me on his back. We went to this hideout. I remember it smelt horrifically. Uh, I, I could barely breathe there. Um, and she said it made, it made me think of a, some kind of drinking den, this hideout. Um, and that was pretty much the full extent of detail I could get from her, that she remembered those things. She said, I don't know quite how long he carried me for. So, you know, I could have written that. I could have written that's all that Lean remembered. But, you know, you also know this has happened. You know, so it's not you're really inserting a bit of drama that isn't there. It's just that she cannot remember it. So this is a kind of question of what's truer to her experience. If I say, you know, she went to this place that smelt like a drinking den, you're kind of losing out on what the little girl went through. So what I did with all these things was I would... Um, you know, go to the location. Uh, I, I couldn't be sure which house she'd been hidden in, which farm it was, but she said it was a, a white farm on the outskirts of this town. So I found various farms that might look like they were correct and thought about how she would have got there. Um, so, and, you know, I researched things like the resistance in that area. So then I eventually wrote it up. And then I sent it to Lean, and she, that's the first time that I'd sent her a chapter that she was troubled by. And she kind of said, you know, yeah, I suppose it could have been like that, but it feels too active. I, 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 I can't see it in this, this way. Um, so what I decided to do was keep that reaction in. Uh, so I describe it exactly like that, and then I say afterwards in the book, when Lean reads this passage, she's troubled by it. Um, and in the end, she says, I can live with it. Mm. So I said, well, if you can live with it, then I'll, I'll write that in. Um, and actually, interesting, the publisher was very uncomfortable with those things in the book. Uh, they, they, they kind of said, you know, people won't like that. You know, it's, it's undercutting the narrative. And, you know, could we just... You know, and so they actually sort of blue-penciled those bits of the book. Where I, and there's a couple of times where I say, Lean doesn't remember this. Mm. Um, but I just said, no, it, it needs to be in there. I don't want this to become a historical novel. Um, yes, I can use my imagination and I can use other people's memories to fill the gaps in Lean's memory, but, but for me, one of the kind of core subjects of this is memory itself and how fallible it is. Uh, and Lean as a subject is there both in the moment of narration, i.e. during the war or also later than the war, but she's also there as herself at 82, looking back at this little girl who's, who's actually someone different now, who she can't totally access. Um, 
so luckily that's kind of actually ended up working. I mean, I think it was the thing that some initial readers sort of said they didn't like because, you know, what was I doing in there? What were all these continual disruptions to the narrative? Um, but hopefully now I think that's actually one of the things that people do value about the book, that it's, that it's about something more complicated than what's become a slightly uh, almost cliched way of dealing with wartime experience, that we novelize it and we have these ideas of a straightforward endpoint, uh, a straightforward idea of what you can reconstruct. And, you know, there are facts. It's, it's not as though, you know, the facts of the war are disputable, but there is also a huge amount of lost memory. Mm. No, I'm so pleased you kept those bits in there because it's, it's a story about both of you. Yeah. Right, like it's based on her story, but it's also your story of uncovering this history um, in your response and reaction. So, very pleased you proved the publishers <laughs> wrong on that front. Um, but um, I wondered if you could talk about what you feel the contemporary relevance of the book is. You make lots of references throughout to rising anti-Semitism. Um, the, the rise of extremism across the world, the Charlie Hebdo massacres take place during the writing of the book, and, and obviously and unfortunately, the separation of children from their parents is com completely contemporarily relevant. Mm. Is there, were there things, are there things that you hope that people will take from your book? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, because the book plays out in the present day as well as in the past, those contemporary resonances force themselves upon the reader, really. This is a country in which there is a political party getting, you know, 20, uh, in the case of Pinfortown, 30, uh, you know, an earlier stage, 30% of the vote, which, you know, th these are parties who are routinely coming out with Muslim hate speech. Uh, so Pinfortown, you know, gets substantial uh, representation in Dutch elections. Sorry, uh, Pinfortown did two, and now Geert Wilders. Hilders has said things like uh, the Quran should be banned. Um, uh, he's, you know, continually, you know, getting mobs to chant, "We want fewer Moroccans." Uh, you know, this uh, he, he wants the article in the Dutch constitution that says there's equality of religion. He wants that struck out, uh, and people are voting for that. So, I hope that nuanced sense of the relevance of uh, the wartime experience is there. You know, it's, it's, yes, it's about remembering anti-Semitism, and, you know, anti-Semitism is scarily resurgent. Uh, but it's also about realising that there are other groups who, who you know, potentially the subject of, of, of hate and marginalisation. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, so Lean's trying to pull that out. I, and I think it's, I've, I really profoundly worry about how... Um, resilient democracy can be in the face of the internet, essentially. You know, if we, if we have a dropping away of shared forms of communication where, you know, just lies are becoming a routine currency of uh, debate in a way that's unstoppable, um, you know, it's, that starts to feel very 1930s. Mm. Uh, you know, that sense that I've, I've had, you know, informed people say, you know, well, I don't think democracy really works. And you think, well, you know, have you seen the alternative? You know, <laughs> we've been here. And, you know, just you, you, you cannot uh, underestimate how dangerous a moment this actually is for the kind of collapse of those values that I think mostly the Allies kind of did learn after the end of World War II.